those of us, by that I mean those of us that believe and trust in Jesus, who he is and what he's done, we've surrendered our life to him as Lord and Savior. Uh, he's, he's addressing what life should be like and what it should look like for those of us that live in the kingdom. And so um, you might remember the illustrations of salt and light, a city on a hill. Do you remember that? Um, and then he goes on to speak about how we should read and understand the scriptures in light of who he is. And that really sets a foundation for what Jesus is then going to speak into. Um, because what we see then in chapter 5, verse 20 to 48, is that I think seven times he will say, you have heard that it was said. And then he'll quote a portion of the Old Testament. So a couple of weeks ago, Phil did anger, uh, and, and Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. Um, and so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, some challenging stuff uh, in there as we seek to live as followers of Jesus. But that language was typical language of a rabbi. They would say, you have heard that it was said, and then quote a portion of the Old Testament, and then they would say, but I say to you, and that's not them trying to rewrite the scriptures, that's them offering their interpretation, which is why it's so significant that Jesus starts with saying, look, in light of who I am and what I'm doing, that's how you read the scriptures. Because Jesus is going to say, this is what was said. Let me tell you what it means. And so um, this morning, we're going to be a little less contentious and a little less challenging and a little less controversial than anger. Yeah, right. Um, Jesus is uh, going to pick up on some stuff this morning. And uh, I just want to say from the start that it may be triggering for some people. Uh, it may be uh, anxiety-inducing. It may be raise more questions than it answers. Um, I'm just preaching what Jesus is saying. So um, just thank you in advance for, for not emailing me tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but he's going to speak into sexuality, lust, the female body, desire, divorce, and adultery. Welcome to church. <laughs> You're like, apologies to those of you that are visiting. <laughs> We're just working through the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5 um, uh, let me read it to you. It says this, in, starting in verse 27. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry. It should come up on the screen. It says this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You ready? <laughs> the exits are that way if you want to get going. Um, uh, for me, anyone who says that the Bible is out of touch with the present world, with reality, I, I want to say, uh, no, it's not. It doesn't shy away from tough topics. It doesn't, doesn't not address certain scenarios and situations. I think it is very relevant for the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Um, when we think of uh, family, the breakdown of family, when we think of media, social media, movies, TV shows, the news, even walking down the street on certain, uh, certain places and certain days, and the, the views from the left and the right, from inside the church and outside of the church. What Jesus speaks into in these verses is seen across ethnic social, political, and economic divides, and it is having an impact. Do I tell the funny joke just to start on a light note? Okay, I will. Blame Alan if this doesn't make you laugh, but I'm just going to start with a, a light note first uh, before we get heavy. But there was a vicar, and he, he was going to do a series on the Ten Commandments. And so he decided, uh, I'll do this series over ten weeks. It'll be great. And um, it got to thou shalt not steal. 
And so he's, he recently had his bike stolen. Now, it was a small village, so he knew it had to be somebody in the church. It was either somebody in the church or somebody that they knew. So when he was going to preach, thou shalt not steal, he said, like, I am going to go to town on this sermon, and I'm going to make sure they feel so condemned that whoever stole my bike will return it because it's just unacceptable. And so he's preaching, and he's really going for it and really making people, anyone that would have stolen the bike, just making them feel really, really guilty. And so he was quite pleased with himself when he finished the sermon and, you know, just went home feeling very happy. And um, uh, he was disappointed because over the next week, his bike was not returned to him. So he was really disappointed. Obviously, he hadn't preached strong enough with enough condemnation uh, that no one really got what he was on about. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later... When he started to preach on thou shalt not commit adultery, he suddenly remembered where he'd left his bike. <laughs> I'm glad that tickled you. <laughs> now, that's not to, that's not to, <laughs> that's not to bring uh, lightness and joke to, to that topic. Um, but just to say, actually, that no one is immune. No one is immune from its effects and its impact um, and so we're going to navigate uh, some of this. And uh, as followers of Jesus, how, how do we navigate all of these voices, all of these attitudes, these actions? Well, I'm not going to do anything clever this morning. You've not got three points all beginning with the same letter. I'm just going to work verse by verse through this and we'll do some teaching. Is that okay? Good, because that's what I've done. So verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, Jesus has already unpacked the sixth commandment. You've heard that it said, do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. So now he gets on to, um, uh, from Exodus 20, he now gets on to the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And maybe for you, you're sat there and you're like, I'm doing all right, because a few weeks ago they said, do not murder. So that's one for, oh, I'm all right. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming nobody's murdered anybody in, in the room. So we're doing okay with that one. And then the second one, some of you were like, there's, there's some, some, some story there, and maybe that's had an impact. But for others, maybe you're thinking, I'm two for O. I'm doing all right. Thou shall not commit adultery. I've, I've not done that. We're okay. Well, this is exactly the attitude that Jesus would have been facing as he spoke on that hillside. Because the common view among the rabbis at the time was to keep the seventh commandment meant not having uh, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. So no, no extramarital uh, affair. Uh, uh, you know, I'm married, I haven't done it with anyone other than my spouse, then I'm good. Ignore the fact that the 10th commandment says, do not covet, and within that list it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. They would narrow this scripture down, this commandment down to, as long as I have not done it with anybody other than my spouse, if I'm married, then we're good. And it can be easy to read this morning and think the same, but Jesus is going to unpack this, and he's going to unpack it from the point of view of saying, this is God's heart behind the commandment. That this commandment is there, but there's a heart of God that's being revealed through this commandment. So you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now you'll notice something. The framework for what Jesus is speaking into is marriage. Adultery happens within marriage, and he's speaking to men. Because it says, anyone who uh, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So women, you're good. You can, you can switch off. You can forget about this sermon. This is all for the men this morning. I, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, that is the context that Jesus is speaking into, absolutely. And I will continue to speak into that context because I'm preaching what Jesus said. But I think the principles of what Jesus is speaking into go way beyond that. 
way beyond, if, if, if you hear me, way beyond the, the heterosexual male marriage. Okay, I think it goes way beyond that. That whatever your object of desire, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that, that, that is, is the struggle or the temptation or the sin for you, I think Jesus speaks into that. In fact, one commentator says this, Jesus' emphasis is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in thought and look. So that's what he's saying there is it's not just one context, one act, one way, but it's every action visibly and mentally, male, female. Jesus is saying that limiting the command to not commit adultery to one context and one act misses what's going on below the surface. That In each of us, we've got a heart. And there's some stuff that goes on in our heart that needs to be dealt with. As I said, I'm going to continue to speak into the married male-female context because that's what Jesus is saying. But I want you just to hear this and, and think about your life. Think about where you are. And how, how, how is it what Jesus is saying? How does that speak into where I am? Now, it says, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Let me, let me clear up what's not being said here. What's not being said here is that it's not okay to be attracted to beauty. Okay? So acknowledging that somebody is beautiful is not what Jesus is condemning here. Because that would go against what God did in Genesis 1 and 2, when he said he looked and saw that it was good. That, that word saw is the Hebrew word tov, and it's an aesthetic word. It means to see. It's about seeing. So God saw all of his creation and saw that it was good. So we can acknowledge there are, there are beautiful men and beautiful women. So he's not, he's not saying that, you, you, that, that, and this has been taken by society, uh, Christians throughout the years, is that anything of the flesh, anything like that, it's all evil and we have to get rid of it because God is bigger than that. And more. No, God created flesh. He created humanity and saw that it was good. So he's not saying that, that, that to be uh, seeing beauty is wrong. Now, I, 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 hadn't, I, I don't know how to phrase this. And may, I'm a man, and I, you know, that's hopefully obvious. Um, and I'm speaking from a male perspective of this sermon. So I, I, I can't do it from a female perspective. But God, Jesus is also not speaking. Let me just, let's get really frank. He's not speaking about the flash of sexual desire you get in a moment when you maybe see somebody that you find attractive or maybe you encounter something where somebody's not wearing many clothes and you get that overwhelming desire, okay? I'm standing up here saying it and everyone's looking at me like, I don't have a clue what you're on about. That's fine. I'll stand here and talk about it. Um, he's not speaking into that. Why is he not speaking into that? Because that's temptation. That is not sin. Temptation and sin are different. And we need to acknowledge that. That It says that, um, that Jesus was tempted in every way but without sin. There is a difference. Temptation becomes sin when we take the step to act on that desire. That's what James speaks about in James chapter 1. Maybe we get that flash of sexual desire uh, and, um, uh, and, and we, we struggle in that moment or, uh, and we decide to look or look again or we decide to fantasize or we decide to move towards. Maybe it's a physical attraction, maybe it's an emotional attraction, whatever it is, we feel that need to move towards. And that's the moment when temptation becomes sin. And so the temptation that Jesus is speaking into about a man looking at a woman lustfully is the idea of looking longingly. Dallas Willard translates this verse brilliantly, I think. He says, to look upon a woman for the purposes of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a mean means of savoring the fantasized act. So instead of recognizing the feelings for what they are, 
God-given thing that's part of being human, that's designed to function within God's created order of marriage between one man and one woman found in Genesis. Instead, we maybe dwell on those feelings or we take a second look. Or the horrific thing that I heard once, someone once say is, the second look's wrong, so just last, let the first look last longer. As if that has any difference. It's that we start to imagine, and the temptation then becomes, to, becomes sin. And we start to lust. Now, that, that word is not used very often. I would say it's probably, it's probably now these days more a religious word than it is a, a worldly word. I, I don't, I'm not sure I've heard the word lust said very often outside of the church and outside of uh, this context. But I wonder if that's because so much of society is confused lust and love. That what is labeled as love is really just lust. When you look at 1 Corinthians and the definition of love, being patient and kind, not insisting on its own way or being resentful, Maybe there's a confusion there. Dallas Willard, he goes on after translating this verse, he goes on to say this about lust and love. He says, It is thought that sex is right with anyone you love in the sense of a romantic involvement. And on the other hand, sex without romantic feelings is thought to be wrong, even if the sexual partners are married. Often the romantic love in question turns out upon examination to be nothing more than precisely that fantasized lusting that Jesus called adultery in the heart. One is not in love, but in lust, which glorifies itself as something deeper in order to have its own way. It's about what we can get. And the impact is considerable. It starts with a look, a look with the eyes in our head that awakens the eyes of our heart. And when the heart gets awoken, the actions can follow. And the impact is devastating. In fact, I had a little break while I was writing this sermon because I was just like swamped by all sorts of things the law from Babylonian culture in the whatever century it was, uh, which we'll get onto in a little while. Um, but when your head's in that kind of space, I was like, I just need a break. And believe it or not, um, the break for me looked like uh, Wednesday lunchtime watching a few minutes of Prime Minister's Question Time. I mean, that's how heavy the sermon was preparing, that Prime Minister's que- Question Time seemed light. Um, and so I'm sat watching it while I had some lunch, and it was amazing because a female MP stood up to raise the awareness of sexual violence against women. And the stats say that over the last two years, every week, there are 33 reported cases of sexual violence against women. Every week. And that's just what's reported. I think the impact has devastating consequences with what Jesus is speaking into. One writer says that sexual harassment as we know it would simply disappear under Jesus' ethic of sexuality. The hurt, the suffering. Is it extreme to say that it, it starts with that second lustful look, that something happens in the heart, that we could then link that to say the, the 33 reported acts against women, of violence against women? So what do we do with it? What do we do with temptation? What do we do with uh, uh, the, the overwhelming sense that we feel we can't resist sometimes? What do we do with, in your context, what that looks like for you? What do we do with it? Well, Jesus says uh, something quite extreme. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what we're going to do is uh, we'll, we'll finish the sermon in, in the next few moments. And um, we've got a, like a really sharp knife just behind here. So as a response time, if you feel like, you know, that this is a reality, then you can come forward and we can just chop off whatever part of the body applies. <laughs> 
somebody's pushing their husband forward in that moment. <laughs> I mean, it's extreme, isn't it? It's an extreme thing to say. Dismember, you know, self-mutilation. But commentators and scholars are, are unanimous in this, that, that Jesus is being extreme to make a point. He's not being extreme to belittle the seriousness of it, but it's what we would call hyperbole. He's being extreme in order to say, this is serious, so you need to do something serious about it. And he's saying, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I wonder if that's more about what we see, what we look at, what we watch. If your hand causes you to sin, what about the things that we do? Let's take it on further. If your feet cause you to sin, what about places that you go where you find yourself? Cut them off. That's to say, do everything you can to cause yourself not to be in those situations and those places and in those circumstances. Don't look, don't do, don't go. Behave as if you've actually had these hands, these feet, these eyes cut off so you literally cannot, you're unable to visit those places physically, virtually, to do what, what needs to be done in order to remove the temptation. And this isn't just with sexual temptation. If, uh, this is where my logic goes. If this was just with sexual temptation, then surely Jesus is missing the most obvious body part to cut off. You know? So I think this applies to all of us. Whatever the temptation, whatever the struggle... And it's a battle, as I say, not just with sexual temptation, but with all temptation. And I'm going to leave the last word on this of, of sin and temptation. And I want to emphasize there's a difference between temptation and sin. Um, and and uh, I might speak into it a little bit more in a moment. But Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on this passage, in his 16th century wit, said this. We should not make the bolsterings of Jesus' teaching too taut here. As if anyone who merely is tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or biting off my nose. <laughs> I think in the 16th century, people would have been rolling on the aisles with that one. See, we do have a choice when it comes to our actions in response to temptation. We have a choice. And I want to say there's grace in all of that. God understands our human frailty. There is forgiveness. So this isn't, as we've been saying, this is not a spiral into guilt and shame. Okay? That's why I think we were a few people speaking on shame this morning. Is this is not feel condemned, feel shame, there's no way out. Because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not for guilt and not for shame. And I say this is honestly a safe place for those who get it wrong. If we acknowledge whatever the struggle is, and maybe for you, it's taking that huge step to invite somebody into that. Somebody in your gospel community, another Christian friend that you trust, somebody that you can journey with. Maybe it's the consequences and the fallout that causes you to act in a certain way, male or female. There are consequences to our sin, but there is grace enough for when we make the wrong choice. And you know, the issue that Jesus is speaking into here isn't, isn't sexual desire per se. It's not... Uh, the human body, because as I've said, they're not evil. If if you think it's about, you know, we've just got to, we've just got to get, rid, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about this in church. How dare you say the S word in church? You know, if that's if that's your position, then I would encourage you uh, go and read Song of Songs. 
it is, let me say, it's erotic, it's poetic. It is the journey of a man and a woman on their way towards marriage. And Jesus would have heard it read aloud every single year at Passover. That was his worldview. That's what he heard. And you can be reading it going, is this really about, yes, it is. But that's what Jesus was aware of. So he is not some prude or sex spoil sport, but he knows the framework into which sexuality was designed to function. And in our cultural moment where we find ourselves now, everything says that is not okay. If it feels good, do whatever you want. As long as you both consent, whatever happens, happens. But outside of that, Jesus says there's consequences. And the consequences, he says, is, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's pretty stark, isn't it? It's better that you deal with the temptation, because otherwise hell awaits. Now, what I want you to do here is not imagine a fiery torture chamber for the whole of eternity, okay? What I want you to think into is hell on earth. Because other translations use the word Gehenna here. Now, there's a bigger study, uh, which we haven't got time to do right now. But it's the same word that's used in verse 22. And Gehenna was a valley just outside Jerusalem. It was a place in the Old Testament where children were sacrificed. Horrific to f- children sacrificed to false gods. It became a dumping ground for the city's sewerage. It was a place that was crawling with worms and maggots. Fire continually burned there to destroy the the trash that had been thrown out from Jerusalem. It was seen as hell on earth. For anyone who has felt the pain of adultery, the fallout of addiction, the crippling effects of guilt and shame, the death of a marriage, some of you know full well the hell on earth that that is. And Jesus is saying, deal with the temptation drastically because hell on earth is not something that I want anyone to experience. That's the invitation from Jesus. But it's not easy. The way of Jesus is not easy. If you've been, if you've been sold a way of Jesus that is up and to the right, life gets easy, life gets better, then I'm sorry you've been missold and you can go and claim whatever compensation it is that you can claim. Because the calls from Jesus is take up your cross, follow me. See, directing our desire, and this is important to hear, directing our desire, male or female, whatever the desire is, physical, emotional, whatever, directing the desire is a habit of the mind. It's not the law of gravity. It can change. Some of you know that um, it can take a lifetime, that there may not be change straight away. But as Eugene Peterson says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And Jesus offers transformation for those of us that follow him. He offers grace every moment because that transformation doesn't come first time and we can fall and we stumble in all different ways. But I do believe that transformation is possible because Jesus offers it and he doesn't offer something that doesn't happen. And so we draw close to him in the community that we find ourselves. This is, this is the discipleship model is that uh, it, we can't do it on our own. We invite the Holy Spirit to help us but we know that God is a creator God. He's a transforming God. And so we do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We know there's grace for when we make mistakes along the way. And we do it within community. We do it alongside other people. But I do believe transformation is possible. 
Are we okay? Still breathing? Are you ready for 10 more minutes on divorce? One, one vote is enough. I don't know how I ended up with this sermon, by the way, because I scheduled the talks. So somehow I ended up giving myself this talk. Ian has managed to get himself preaching down at Leon C, but maybe he'll do a better job if we get it gone and get, do it again in a few weeks. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament here. This time he's quoting from Deuteronomy 24. And we need to remember that when Jesus quotes a portion of the Torah, uh, the Old Testament, that the people he's speaking to, they knew that book or those books. I'm guessing most of you, apart from myself, don't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. And don't laugh at me as if I'm lying. No, I am. I've not got those memorized. But I'm guessing that nobody in the room has those five books memorized. Jesus is speaking to people. When he makes a quote and says something, it was very, very common for, um, you know, when you see Jesus and he winds up the Pharisees, he can say something and you're like, why are they getting angry at that? It's because what he's saying is the direct verse before it or after it within the section is what riles them. And he's deliberately being ambiguous by saying one phrase, but he knows the Pharisees will be thinking of that whole section and that gets them wound up. Well, Jesus is quoting one part of a section of Deuteronomy. So let me read it to you. And they would have had this memorized. So they knew when Jesus was saying, um, uh, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. They know he is quoting this portion of scripture from Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1. It says this, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him. Look at that language. She becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her and send her away from his house. Interesting language. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, God bless this woman, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's in the Bible. And at first glance, we're reading it and we're going, I mean, what? It seems so specific. And it's like, what does that mean for us? Because we don't live then. And and it just seems odd to our ears, doesn't it? Some of you, as I was reading, were kind of doing that. And and it just seems odd. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not a command. I've got time to unpack this. But in the Old Testament, there are different types of laws. There's ceremonial law, moral law, case law. So if this case was to happen, this is how it is dealt with. This is not about when divorce is okay or God's heart towards divorce. One writer says this, what, is actually, what this is actually about is the devastating effects of divorce and how to mitigate its effects on women in ancient society. So what this verse, what this Deuteronomy passage is actually about is guarding against the oppression of women if this situation should happen. Moses says you should at least give a certificate of divorce. Not just cast her out and neglect and forget and she just carries this guilt and shame and is known as this woman that's been rejected without any reason or cause. 
And she's, she's then also free to remarry if there's a certificate of divorce. Now, you also need to know that the people of God didn't live in isolation. This isn't just like, here's the law and everybody abides by it. They lived with other cultures surrounding them. In fact, at some point, they were under the oppression of those cultures like Babylon. And this is where I got lost in a load of Babylonian law this week. But the Babylonian law at this time said that a man could divorce a woman and then claim her back, whether she wanted it or not, she could claim her back up to five years after the divorce by simply saying, you're mine again. Like a piece of property. This passage in Deuteronomy is saying, that is not okay. If you divorce, what's it say? The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again. That's what it's saying. In this case, in this situation. Now, I don't think in this passage the Bible is affirming all the actions. The Deuteronomy passage is not saying this is all okay. If you look at the language, displeasing to him. I think actually what this passage reveals is look how far the human heart can fall. Man's heart. That a woman can just become displeasing to him and he pushes her out. If the human heart can fall that low then we need to protect the vulnerable. And it's always the heart of God. His heart is towards the, the, the widow and the orphan. His heart is always towards the, the vulnerable and the broken. Now, what we need to know is that as, as Jesus is speaking into this, he's speaking into this specific passage because there was a raging debate going on at the time about this passage. The rabbis would debate this passage. And there was one, one bit of it that they would de- debate in verse 1. I'm getting into the nitty-gritty because we need to get into the heart of what God is saying because this passage is so often misread and applied in a way that it was never intended to be applied. But it says this, uh, in verse 1, it says, uh, let me find it, it says, if a man marries a woman, she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. That phrase was under massive debate at the time of Jesus. What does in, uh, something indecent mean? And some of the rabbis would say it means adultery. That's what it means. If you're married, the indecent thing is if your wife commits adultery. Others would say the indecent thing means absolutely anything at all. Cooks you a meal that you don't like, that's that's an indecent thing. She wakes up one morning, her hair's in a style that you don't like, that's displeasing to you, I'm sorry, you're out. There's some really bizarre examples of what the anything is. Jesus is weighing in on this debate because there were so many misreadings of this Deuteronomy passage. And he says, indecent doesn't mean anything at all. Now we can, we can look at the time of Jesus and think that it was a deeply moral religious culture, and it was, but it was also a really easy divorce culture. And so at the time of Jesus, these readings of Deuteronomy were allowing people to use any reason whatsoever for divorce and also reading it to say that only men could, women, could divorce women. That's not what Moses is saying. I've even heard that in recent years. Somebody say to me, the divorce doesn't apply because I didn't divorce her, she divorced me. It said at the time, it was, we don't need to go to court. They could just throw them out like a piece of rubbish. And like we've heard, to be treated like a piece of rubbish brings shame. The women would have no rights. And Jesus doesn't agree with this. So he weighs in on the debate. In verse 22, he says, But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, he's 
He's saying this is what it means, the indecent thing, divorces his wife except in the case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying, I know the popular view is the easy divorce uh, view for any reason whatsoever, but I'm telling you that is not okay. Something in Deuteronomy that's indecent means adultery. Now, that being said, as I've been speaking this morning, I said at the start there will be things that trigger. I know some people's lives. I don't know everybody's lives. Uh, I know some people's stories. I don't know everybody's stories. And as we read these verses from Jesus, there are all sorts of questions that come up about divorce, remarriage, because as we read it, it seems like Jesus seems to be saying that divorce is only permitted if there's been an affair. Even then, all the remarriage is now adultery. And that can be, that seems hard to swallow, doesn't it? Seems, seems like, that seems really strict and narrow. And so people ask questions. What about abuse in a marriage? Physical, sexual abuse. What about desertion? Paul speaks into that in Corinthians. What about this or about that? And me saying that doesn't belittle the questions. These are really important questions. Really important questions. Not ones that we have time to unpack now. And I want to say, if this is something you are questioning, then two things I can direct you to is, do a really good study of Matthew 19. Jesus speaks into some stuff there. And there's a, a beautiful passage that, that he explains things. And I would also, I've not read this book, but I spoke to somebody and said, what would you recommend? And they said, a book called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Instone Brewer. It's not coming from me having read it, but I know the author, and I would encourage you uh, to go there if, if you've got those kind of questions. That being said, in Matthew chapter 5, the reason I'm not going there is because uh, that's not what Jesus is addressing in this passage. He's not giving an in-depth teaching on divorce and remarriage. Jesus is not answering the question, when can I get a divorce as a follower of Jesus? As if one line answer uh, uh, would cover it all. He's not doing that. What Jesus is doing in is coming in on a debate on his day over the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. And in doing so, he's saying, uh, uh, he, he's unpacking that lust is not okay and it should be dealt with. And that neither is the easy divorce culture that we have adopted at the time of Jesus. Maybe we've adopted it today. It's not okay. Seems pretty relevant, doesn't it? Seems like the pages of Scripture apply quite a lot to what we find ourselves in today. And for those of us, I'm coming into land, and we'll give an opportunity to response with communion, and we'd love to pray with people. Um, but what Jesus is speaking into is that as followers of Jesus in the room this morning, he's calling us to view marriage not as a contract that we opt in and out of depending on how we feel, but it's a covenant. And I know what I'm saying will be triggering to some. As I said, there's grace and forgiveness and mercy in all of it, but God's heart is that it is a covenant made until death us do part. And there's always mistakes in marriage and sin in marriage, but the heart posture of a follower of Jesus should be repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. How do I honor you as a human being? How do I honor myself and my own humanity? So where do we go from here? It's been some heavy stuff. Jesus doesn't shy away from the difficult topics. So what do we do? Some of it is emotional, triggering. So thank you for your patience. I'm praying that I've communicated with grace and clarity, not condemning, not judging. But where do we land? Because I want to say these verses 
They uh, challenge me. They inspire me. They convict me. Without doubt, there is a call upon the Jesus of followers, the, the followers of Jesus, to take seriously temptation, to take seriously sin, and in this context, to take seriously our sexual desire. It's a challenge, and I say that male and female in the world that we live, submitting our sexuality to God is a very challenging thing, because society says it's your thing. You do what you want, however you want. But Romans 12 says that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And we have to confess that is difficult in a sexually broken world. But God is creator. He's paid the price. The Holy Spirit is our helper. And we're placed within the family of the church to do this alongside each other. Not me as the pastor or Ian as the pastor or the elders of the church. Not, not us doing it on your behalf, but doing it for and with each other. It says, take seriously sin. I think the other thing is to hold sacred the covenant of marriage, that we're to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that within the church it looks different. Now, what I'm saying there is, as I say a city on a hill, let me also acknowledge, I am not elevating marriage to make those of you that are single feel lesser. That's also not the case. Paul would have quite a lot to say on that, actually. So I'm not... I'm not I'm not trying to raise marriage up as the ultimate ideal. But Jesus takes head on the easy divorce culture and says, honor each other. Honor marriage is a commitment between two separate autonomous human beings that are fused together at the deepest level. In the words of Genesis, they become one flesh as they live into that reality, as they live into that union physically, emotionally, experientially, over and over again. So we, we take seriously sin and temptation we honor marriage within a culture that doesn't. Men in the room, let me speak to you for a moment. In such a sexualized world, honoring women is a huge part of what Jesus is speaking into. He's saying, do not objectify and do not oppress women. Because the consequences are devastating. I know this passage is directed towards men, but what about you women? honoring, honoring the women that are around you. I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard it said that when a man says, I want, that, I want that body, a woman would say and look and go, I want that body. So they, they, they cover the other person's body to say, if only I looked like this. I don't know if that's true. I'm not female, so I can't, I can't talk into that uh, uh, um, mental process. But what does it look like to honor your own body as one made in the image of God? What does it look like to honor the others around you as made in the image of God? So what does it look like to apply these principles and these verses of what Jesus is speaking into into how we find ourselves today? To deal with the guilt and shame that so often comes alongside it. Alan, will you come up and just start to play? That'd be great. What I want to say is we focused on one area, but I, I'm glad that Debbie came and spoke because uh, shame and guilt uh, doesn't sit in one area, one circumstance, and temptation isn't just one area. Uh, sexual sin is not the be-all and end-all. Some churches want to make it the be-all and end-all. It's not. Uh, it, is, it is level with sin at the foot of the cross. I also want to say this is that um, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Some of you need to hear that. 
but we have to acknowledge sin. And as the call as, as followers of Jesus is really simple. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And that's why there's no guilt and shame. Yes, there's sin, and we acknowledge that. But when we sin, the invitation from Jesus is repentance. To step back into his way of life. And the way of life that he offers is fullness and flourishing and fruitfulness. And it's the life that only he can offer. So the invitation is to repent, to rethink from the ground up, to change our direction, to believe, to put your whole life and trust in the good news. You know, every time we wake up, there is a story that the world is telling us about what it means to be successful, what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be sexual, what it means to be a human being. And I don't think the jury's out anymore on whether that story is a good story. I'm not sure, no, I'm not sure. There is no way that we can look at society and say, the way the world goes, it works. So I think there's a better story, better way to be human, and it's the way that Jesus offers. And I'm not stood here as someone who has it all together and has figured it all out, come follow me. My invitation is, can you help me as I'm trying to follow Jesus? Still learning, still messing up, still repenting, still believing, still struggling on those days sometimes to believe. But it's a story that says you are made in the image of God. There is meaning and purpose to your life. And who you are becoming is significant. And through it all, there is a God whose will is goodness towards us, who runs towards us when we walk away and we turn back. Who took the pain and the punishment for all our sin upon himself and he took it to the grave and he's no longer in the grave. The sin is in the grave, but he's risen again. And that one day he will return and he will make all things new. And all of the tears that have been shed in the moments of hell on earth, they will be wiped away. That's the better story that we get to live into. That's the hope and the grace in the midst of all that we go through in life. So what I want to do right now is just give you a personal moment. If you would like someone to pray with you, then please, we'd love to pray with you. And you don't have to share anything. You can just say, I just want someone to sit and pray with me. And that's great. We will sit and pray with you. But if you want to be private in this and uh, have a personal moment, then what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And this is evidence of God's grace, that the table is open to those that believe in Jesus. All that believe in Jesus. And it's the promise of his abundance, of his forgiveness, of his grace. I hate it when a passage of the Bible disappears when you're just trying to look for it.
John 6. It says, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Can't do it on our own. The one who eats the flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. That's the promise of this moment. Not being cast out, not being rejected, not full of guilt and shame. I will be in you and you will be in me. And so this is a table of forgiveness. It's a table of grace.